Welcome, 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 everyone, to this episode of Tech Cars Machines. I'm your host, Ali Tabibian, and you can read more about me and GTK Partners, the producer of this podcast series, at gtkpartners.com and in the episode notes, of course. It's baseball season, so let's use a baseball analogy. This episode is one of our first at-bats regarding technology and machines, and we've already hit a two-run homer. That's because we have two episodes for you with GE Digital, perhaps the most important entity bringing advanced technology to capital equipment. One episode, which we've already released, and you can listen to it uh, right before this one, is with Eddie Amos, Chief Technical Officer of GE Digital. Today, we're hearing from the Chief Executive Officer of this unit, Bill Rue, who has been there from the very beginning of the technology and machines trend. It doesn't seem like an exaggeration to say that no one has been there earlier, longer, or on a bigger platform than our guest today, Bill Rue. General Electric today is a purveyor of heavy capital equipment, such as power turbines and jet engines, and that's why you heard the jet sound at the beginning of this episode. GE Digital is the company's software unit, and it's mandated with infusing software smarts and networking concepts into the world of capital equipment. GE calls this concept the industrial internet. You've probably heard it as IIoT, which stands for the Industrial Internet of Things. GE pioneered this space in 2011, really several years ahead of others. In that year, GE announced a billion-dollar five-year initial investment in its digital effort and has since spent about $1.5 billion in related acquisitions for this unit. GE Digital has always been headquartered in San Ramon, about an hour northeast of San Francisco, where I'm sitting right now, and it currently has about or just under 2,000 employees at that location. What you'll hear from Bill today is a really interesting and sweeping view on GE Digital's Genesis story. You'll hear where the unit is today and lessons on innovating within a large organization in general. Now remember, the type of capital equipment GE makes and GE Digital addresses is typically expensive, mission critical, and has life safety implications. Therefore, this equipment has always been censored and connected, typically in very expensive fashion before modern technologies were introduced, but really has been connected and censored for many years. So most of the focus is in this space is on the increasingly ambitious aspiration for what to do with all that data rather than how to collect it and, and move it around. Without further ado, here's Bill Rue. Tech, cars, machines. Subscribe here or at gtkpartners.com. Great. We're here today with Bill Rue, Chief Executive Officer of GE Digital, out here at GE Digital's headquarters in San Ramon. Bill, thank you very much for meeting with us here today and taking the time. Ali, it's great to be with you again. We really appreciate it. Uh, As some of our listeners know from our prior content and, and publications, Bill was kind enough a few years ago to be a speaker at one of our conference, at our inaugural uh, large conference, actually. And then we've had representatives from GE at subsequent conferences, thanks to really Bill's uh, referrals to us, uh, to those individuals. Bill, tell us about the genesis of GE Digital. Why did you come here to do, to do what, you, uh, what you started, I think, in 2011, if yeah. I'm not mistaken? Yeah, so, you know, it's over seven, seven years now. It's, uh, we're working towards that eighth year. And you know, there's really two things that came about. I was at Cisco Systems, a great company. You know, John Chambers was an amazing leader. And we could see that rather than people getting connected, we were starting to see the, the early stages of machines getting connected on the network and uh, all kinds of machines. 
And more and more of the data was becoming this machine data. And I could see this trend was going to continue. And you, you saw the Internet of Things, but it really hadn't been figured out how you're going to make money at the Internet of Things. So when I was you know, contacted by a recruiter to go to GE, first of all, I was shocked that GE was getting into software data and analytics. But it made a ton of sense to me because if you look at it, the vast majority of really interesting data is going to come off of interesting machines and interesting industries. Oil and gas, power, transportation, the rail industry, healthcare. You know, this is where the action is going to be. It's, it's less interesting, I'd say, in the sort of consumer thermostat. But you get the data coming off a jet aircraft engine, and it's amazing how this can be transformative for these industries. You know, at that time, you could see that GE was beginning to realize that data was going to be the source of more value in their services business. And what I saw is a company that was early enough that could actually make a difference in the world. And it was really hard to to leave that, you know, that Cisco environment. But I could see that coming to GE, we had a chance really to foundationally create this industrial internet of things and really change the world. And I think today, nobody asks me like they did back then, why are you doing it? Everybody asks, how are you doing it? And I think that just represents that everybody's seeing the value and the change coming to the industrial world. That's really pretty interesting. How did you finally get your arms around the fact that it's going to be difficult for an industrial company to really embrace or not necessarily for the industrial company to embrace the other, for the, but the two worlds to come together. What sort of convinced you that this was going to be a strong at bat? Well, I think you have a you know you have a company that has reinvented itself on many occasions over 125 years. So I always felt GE was a place where great leaders were born, educated, and change is built into the company. We could see the company going through change today. The second thing is GE had had real data. Look, a, a lot of companies get started, they have no data and no domain knowledge. And this company has data and domain knowledge. The hard thing was getting them to understand the change in architecture. When I got here, people were Microsoft, .NET, SAP, you know, the last generation architecture. Getting them to realize that today's best applications are cloud, mobile, blockchain, DevOps, Agile, AI, machine learning, open source, big data. Those set of technologies are the ones that the winners are applying. And so the hard thing I knew was one, getting them to understand this change, bringing in the talent. The second hard change is getting everyone to think about and re-envision their business with this. The good news is we've been able to go through a series of of steps and get there. And now we pushed a lot of this out to the businesses. And digital is a part of the DNA of the businesses, whether it's healthcare, aviation, transportation. They now own their digital future. Oh, interesting. Interesting. We should go into that a little bit later. I do remember when one of the first times we met several years ago, I asked you what was most striking to you when you joined a GE in terms of a cultural fit. And you said, 
when industrial people say reliability and say safety, they mean something that somebody coming out of your typical Silicon Valley background just doesn't, it's not ingrained in them the way it is for somebody who, put, who puts planes in the air. Uh, is that still one of the, the things you found out? What, what else was kind of uh, intriguing when you first came in and looked around at yeah, the, the, that you Yeah, you know what, I, I tell people all the time, the three most important things for any company, industrial, financial services, retail, to be able to compete in the future, meaning with digital. Because no company is going to be able to compete without a very strong digital DNA background. And we can talk automotive as a great example of that, but it's true of every industry. When you got here, the way you build these kind of big machines is... Uh, the antithesis of how you build software. So knowing your requirements, deep testing, uh, the way you go about engineering is still more of a waterfall methodology. Whereas, as you well are aware, the companies who are doing well in digital, they're DevOps and Agile, and they're ta- they talk about minimally viable products and, and pivoting. Well, you don't pivot with putting you know, a product into a u- utility you have to make sure you deliver fully the capability because your ability to change is limited. The thing about software, your ability to change is limitless. And so you you just have to realize you're taking two different cultures of development and popping them together. And you got to rationalize that. That can be very hard. But I'd say culture in general is one of the chief challenges of, uh, and, and I gave you one example where development culture fits, but you could see where product culture fits and financing fits. A good example of financing is you you capitalize when you build these big machines. You, you It's OPEX when you're building software if you're going to do it effectively. Talent is the second thing. Look, I think if you, you can't just take, you know, when you go to an industrial company, they think of IT, software, et cetera, as all fungible. They don't realize that uh, an SAP programmer isn't going to be a cloud programmer. And so getting the right talent was a big challenge for us in the beginning. And then I think the last thing is leadership. Look, you have to have leaders who believe and understand this transformation, and they have to lead. So a great industrial firm that embraces digital embraces the ability to, to mesh the culture and be able to make that work, the ability to bring in new talent digital natives, and then train their existing people, digital migrants, and make that come together. And then lastly is able to have leaders who can envision the, the, what's made them successful in industrial products, but able to lead with new digital products. And that is really hard to have people hold both of those things together in their minds simultaneously. And I, I think if you go back to Clayton Christensen's Innovator's Dilemma, the inability to do those things simultaneously is the innovator's dilemma. But when you do in those three areas, that's the kind of company that can make a foundational shift. One of the um, books on innovation that I've uh, really been impressed with that came out recently was uh, Ed Catmull's book called Innovation. And Ed, as you probably know, is a local gentleman, ran Pixar for years and years and years and now runs the joint Pixar Disney Studios. His point is, if you want innovation to happen, 
you have to essentially, in the beginning, silo it within the organization and have it report directly to the top. Otherwise, for very good and very understandable and very legitimate reasons, that unit will itself always wind up responding to the, that quarter's exigencies of the operating units. GE Digital, to me, seems like it's kind of set up that, was set up originally that way. A little bit on its own and reporting straight to the top. Was that coincidence, intentional, just by virtue of where you need to find the talent? No, I think that's how, that's exactly it. When, uh, when it was set up under our prior CEO, Jeff Immelt, I think, you know, he, he incubated it in that way. But you also have to have a plan for what you do over the long haul. So remember, we're, we're approaching eight years. And if you think about it, we really went through three stages. The first, you might call the strategy and incubation stage, the talent stage, where we incubated it as a, a thing we really call the software COE. We brought in talent from the outside. We worked with each of the businesses and we did this advanced development with them and helped them develop new kinds of services and tools and capabilities. We learned a lot about what our strategy should be and it was incubated at the top and fostered at the top. As it got a little stronger, we went into to phase two. We pushed all of that, that talent and, and, and capability back to the businesses because sooner or later, you got to get it back to the core. And then we ended up moving and changing the software COE where we ended up uh, looking at hiring chief digital officers really in each of the businesses. And now we were thinking about portfolios and product lines and bringing talent into the businesses. And it was more about how you generate now revenues and you, you drive towards your digital product line. And so now you're incubating that within your businesses. The final stage was in 2015, we, we actually created GE Digital as a business, as well as a capability to help the businesses. So we continue to foster them building their portfolios while we built out a general capability or product lines, which we call predicts, that enabled us to sell not only to inside the company, but outside the company to enable everybody to be a digital industrial. So we've gone through three stages, and now we're really going to our fourth stage to where this is all matured. The businesses have their own capability. We earn the right to sell to them every day. At the same time, we have our own base of business with industrials, and we're trying to change the world you know, in that broader way. So the thing is, I would say, I think uh, you know, that book got it right. You've got to start, and you've got to, you've got to nurture it. But sooner or later, you've got to let it, it become part and parcel of what you do. Otherwise, you never fully realize all the value. Interesting. The, one of the points the book made was also you know you're getting it right when the business units then start coming to you and saying, can I have some of that? Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's kind of really the, the litmus test. Using a specific example, turbines, jet engines, whatever, whatever uh, a vertical you, uh, you like, just walk us through what is the scope of the GE Digital offering? To what equipment does it apply? Does it just do the turbine? And if not, how do you define the right perimeter? For, uh, for GE, uh, yeah. for predicts to capture for the answer to be difference making. What's interesting is, um, you know, first, you know, if uh, some of the naysayers about GE Digital will say, oh, they only operate on GE equipment. Well, the, the reality is we love GE equipment first and we do <laughs> operate on GE equipment first. We love our install base. But the reality is you cannot be in this business without doing 
everybody else's equipment. Whether you're selling to your install base, which has GE equipment and other things to build a power plant, or whether it's companies who do something outside of what GE does. So we built it so that we are first and foremost thinking, how do we win our install base, but at the same time, how we win the world. And so when you think about an example, I'll give you two. One is, you know, let's go through an example inside the company install base. So Baker Hughes GE is the oil and gas component of of GE. Uh, Great company. And they are building out this digital portfolio that's actually quite impressive. And when you look at uh, one great company like BP, uh, British Petroleum, uh, there we've been working with them on uh, some of their offshore oil rigs to look at how do you look across the equipment, much of a GE, but end-to-end about on an offshore oil rig, call it 600 really critical pieces of machinery through the process, integrate all that data and get a, a, a full view on the efficiency, uh, the maintenance, uh, the problems, everything around that, both from an individual machine view and a process view. And this is really game-changing because it allows you to monitor these offshore with real AI and analytics on lots of data and really think about making those systems more efficient. And so, you know, we can see you can drive 2 to 4% more efficiency off an offshore oil rig because of technology like this. And so what's involved with that? Well, there's a platform to pull data and connect machines. There's a product line called Asset Performance Management, which is looking at that, that data about each machine, allowing you to plan and optimize its use and how you maintain it. And then on top of that, BigQG has added a whole set of increased domain value application that's about an offshore oil rig. Another great example of a customer you know, we have is um, Schindler Elevators, different kind of product, but same thing, connecting a million elevators globally, allowing the data to come off of it, doing predictive maintenance on that, uh, becoming more efficient in delivery, and enabling, you know, you to deal with problems before they occur and drive, you know, more people through elevators in a building more efficiently. So, you know, we're, the basics of this is a platform for connectivity and data. It's the ability to do the asset performance management. It's the ability to add your own value on top of it. And then, you know, we'll do it in other domains, not just on the machine. So we do it for your field personnel in what we call, uh, you know, field, field services management. Uh, so now you're taking that same data and you're uh, organizing your field to be more efficient, efficient work. We've done it in the manufacturing facility with our MES and automation, where we've taken traditional MES and automation, but really turned it into a real-time integrated capability. And now we're adding a new product line we call OPM, Operational Performance Management, which ties all that together and now lets you, the manager, see across, let's say, your whole power plant, your whole oil field, across any really large-scale system and look at the operations of it versus the individual machines. So for us, these four areas, APM, field service management, MES and automation, and uh, OPM, they're all interrelated using that data and that IoT connectivity in the platform. And that's what we think of as our Predicts portfolio. And we've, we've been very successful in building our base of business in the last, since 2015 on this capability. 
would I be accurate in to some extent thinking about the predict system as essentially an integration layer for, and sometimes you own uh, the silos underneath, own the software silos underneath, but to some extent, the value is in being able to integrate those various sources of of data uh, and providing the analytics on top of it. I mean, is that an accurate way of thinking about yeah, I, I think it's, it's the way it is, I think, but there are really four things I'd have you think about for how we think about predicts. One is it's the platform that is that middleware layer, which has two things. The integration is one piece, but it also has this asset model. And at the cornerstone of it, uh, we have an asset model. The same way Salesforce has a has a customer, customer model, right, or right. SAP as a financial model, we have an asset model. So it's the platform to pull that data and manage that asset. The second thing predicts is, is a series of applications, pre-built, out-of-the-box capability, get you started, give you value on day one, either making your machines more efficient, your people more efficient, or your operations more efficient. The third thing is an ecosystem. We've worked very hard to bring in partners into this. And so the partners are part really of our predicts product line. And the last thing uh, we think of as the architecture. Look, a lot of technology has been built on last generation architecture. This is built on cloud, mobile, edge, all of the AI, analytics, big data, open source, DevOps, agile. So it's built on a modern architecture that uh, really is going to be the future of how these systems get built. I was looking at some of the recent interviews that were done with you, and the interviewer would still ask questions like, well, why don't people just build on top of AWS? That's a, quite a bit of a misunderstanding of what AWS and some of, uh, and some of their tools are about. Yeah. And if you want value out of a system, boy, you really have to be an expert in the workflow and in the, oper- and, and in the endpoint operations. It's domain uh, knowledge. Yeah. Now, you know, it's funny, you know, Ali, we... We've made mistakes. It, 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 any startup makes mistakes. We, we blaze the trail for all of our right. competitors. That's right. When you look at one of them, for example, one of the mistakes we made, look, we started and we, it was a time when people were building their own data centers and well, white labeling and, and it all seemed like the right thing to do. So it wasn't crazy because we saw the whole Silicon Valley movement towards that. And, and what we discovered is, look, the cloud wars are wars the people who are going to win are going to have big war chests. After about a year of doing it, we realized that was probably not the right approach. After 18 months, we jettisoned that. We pivoted and we said, okay, we're going to ride on the investments made by you know, those leaders in that. And so you're absolutely right uh, you know, the way you describe the question. But one thing is we feel we're going to ride on the, on the investments they're going to make. The other thing is, look, they're not going to be the domain experts at every domain in the world. I, that's just not possible. So we're going to love the asset model, the industrial data, how you, you optimize machines. And that is something that is unique. There is the opportunity for partnering really deeply with these guys and moving it forward. And I think what we've seen, a lot of our customers actually they took a, a, an Azure or an AWS and they said, well, we'll do it ourselves. And, you know, connecting one machine is easy. Connecting a million machines on a global basis and getting really deep insight into the operational machine, that is really hard. So we're, we're focused on that because that differentiates us. And one thing we've learned is we really are thoughtful now on that differentiation and focus and pushing things that are not out you know, to the side and finding a great partner. A lot of the cloud providers are really outstanding ingestion engines, and they have some utilities that are built on top of that. But really, you know, they're, in my industry, 
the funds that manage funds, when you really look at them, yeah. yes, they're supposed to get an investment return, but really they're asset accumulators. Yes. The more assets they have under management, the more money they're making, whether or not they're making money <laughs> for the investor. And it's a little bit of the cloud environment. They're about ingestion because that's what they really get paid for. And if you do something interesting with it, then that's great. You got it. You got um, it. It's, a, it's actually a very fascinating similarity. Where do you see GE sitting now, GE Digital in particular, amongst the other people who uh, operate in this space, some of them coming at it from the equipment angle, some of it from the software-only yeah. uh, angle. Look, we were fortunate that GE had first mover advantage and defined the space. We were also, you know, it was, uh, we had to travel through the jungle with no, with no recipe book. Now, our competitors all have our recipe book, so they can, they can get access to people and things that we didn't have at those time. We invented all that. And so when you think about where we've been, that investment's put us in a really great shape. You know, a couple of key things, and, and I'll come back to the domain data. You know, we, through our acquisitions and by pulling this portfolio together, we now have a thousand plus Predicts customers. We will do 500 million in Predicts uh, revenue in our applications and everything this year. We're seeing great growth on a global basis. You talked a little bit about partnering. There are a lot of people that I meet with that aren't sure what they want to do in the space because they're not sure what you want to do in the space. Yeah. And Eddie Amos in our last interview said in a, in a little while he's going to have a white paper on the subject. What would you like to share maybe at a higher than technical level or maybe even at a technical level where you'd seek cooperation with people and where you'd welcome their, yeah. uh, their input that maybe they don't realize they would be welcome? Well, I came from a company that was probably one of the better partnering companies. Cisco has always been known for its ecosystem, its partnerships, its distribution. You know, so you, you companies can do it, but the vast majority of companies aren't good at it. And certainly this wasn't a core competency within GE when we started. Um, but you, you have to build an ecosystem because you can't do it all yourself. The hard thing is uh, getting that equilibrium or the right balance between you and your partner so you both make money and you both have your position to play because otherwise you're stepping on each other. And, you know, it takes any company a while to figure this out. It, partnering is really hard. You know, I would say a couple of things. You know, one is we, you know, you get uh, exuberant about signing up partners, but you really have to figure out which ones are going to be you're investing in and they're investing in you. And it's co-investment that matters. When I looked at it, you know, it's those who are really committed to your product line, taking it to market, creating programs around it. And then you've got to be committed. You've got to train them. You've got to be standing next to them, you know, at the conferences, et cetera. And, and so the ecosystem has been the, one of the harder things to get set up, uh, one that we are getting better at every day. And, and I look about 15% of our revenue today in GE Digital goes through our partners. And that was almost zero you know, a couple of years ago. So we're excited about where we are, but we see opportunity to grow that. And it grows quarter after quarter, it keeps growing. At the same time, a couple of years ago, our pull through of partners was you know, probably, meaning we sold, but brought a partner in, was close to zero. What we're seeing now is we're, we're between 12 and 15% now bringing partners in. You know, I think the number's probably 30% on both of these is where you, if you can get there, you're in really good shape and we're targeting to try to push everyone in that direction. But we've seen growth quarter after quarter. We're about halfway to where we'd say we feel really good, but um, teams are working hard on it. But creating that, it took a while to get sort of it going. 
there are a bunch of debates that have gone on in the industrial IoT uh, world over the, over the years, and one of them has been you know, edge versus core. Where should the important stuff happen? And I'm sure the answer is, is diffuse and case dependent, but in your view, how have, the, how have the answers to that debate evolved over the last several years? Look, I think this is one of the more interesting opportunities that only the industrial world has. The financial world, the retail world, the consumer world, the cloud is going to dominate more. That doesn't mean you want to, you know, no edge, but it does mean that edge is not as important. When, you, when you're in the environments we're in, real time, reliability, et cetera, lots of data, uh, there's going to be a lot more processing c- closer. And the relationship with the control system is going to be very important. So you're going to connect the edge to the control systems. You're going to have a feedback loop. You're going to bring data in, decide, analyze it, create actions and scenarios, and then push it back and do something with control systems to continually optimize your system. That's the way the world's going to work. And when you look at it that way, it means that the edge compute is important. We also see we live in a world where uh, it's global, industrial is global, so you have data sovereignty. There are countries with laws, regulations, the data can't leave the country. And so you're not going to put a cloud in every country. There'll be some countries you've got to put on-premise, edge-based, bigger capability. We call that, for our case, we call that predicts private cloud, putting a private cloud you know, at an oil field or in a customer's facility. And so the edge with private cloud compute is probably going to play a bigger role in the industrial world than it is in, in any place else. As I look at it, I've, I've said, you know, I, I've come to a belief system, you know, it'll be about 70% processing on the edge and 30% in the cloud, which is, is really the, the opposite of what we see in a lot of other industries. And who knows what it's finally going to be, but it, it, it's going to look more, with more, there's going to be more opportunity to put, you know, compute on the edge. That's why, you know, our partners like HPE and Dell are doing, you know, they've got great products for edge compute. And, you know, we see that there's, uh, there's hope for these kind of companies to expand into these new kind of markets. At the edge, especially when you're dealing with maybe non-GE uh, equipment, Let's just take the simple case where there's uh, a machine, a manufacturing PC, uh, connect, controlling that, that machine. Was your predilection that that PC either be upgraded or its software be upgraded or that there be an intermediary device that sits between the, um, which to some extent the manufacturing people kind of like, at least they've got two pieces of equipment that yeah. they know and that aren't going to touch, but have an intermediary device which, which can do certain things and pre-process the information for the, uh, uh, and maybe shunt some of it to a cloud environment for analysis. Look, all of the current environment of manufacturing facility or any of these industrials, this proprietary hardware uh, had its place in history, but it will eventually get replaced. However, we live in a time where you know you, you don't free will the architecture, meaning you have to connect and utilize those things. But it's really going to be a separate set of boxes that'll connect. Over time, what's really going to happen is we're going to go to you know virtualization of what today is a lot of hardware. We'll get virtualized into software and then put on these boxes because a lot of this PLM and these controllers, etc., that's a combination of hardware software. It used to be all hardware, but now hardware software. And eventually it's like network boxes. We already see, 
you know, that most, uh, a lot of networking is becoming, you know, uh, software-defined networks. We're going to see software-defined PLMs and, and all kinds of things in the future, but that's a while away. And so you're, you're going to see today the multiple boxes, and then you'll see it transition gradually. And that's the beauty of the technology is you don't have to go rip and replace. You can evolve. And we have customers who we're getting up in factories. I recently had one uh, large manufacturing consumer product good company. We did a, a factory of theirs in three months, and they had seen immediate impact. But that's because you could bring these things together in a way that allows you to evolve into it versus uh, a revolution. In the case where you said we did it in three months, maybe give our listeners a little bit of a sense of specifically what was being done, what, what pieces were being added or tweaked or, yeah. or touched. We were, we were bringing the data off those existing systems and running it through a set of, um, uh, through predicts and, and essentially at the edge and in the cloud. And what we're doing when you look at that is uh, that we're analyzing all the machines across the whole production line simultaneously and the operations. And then we're adjusting uh, this, you know, and giving guidance to the people. And, and in the end, people aren't going away. What we're telling them is this is where the inefficiency is in the system right now, or this is where you might have a, uh, some downtime coming. So what's happening is people are becoming very targeted in their actions, and that's changing the nature of work. So, and that's a fascinating answer to me in the sense that there's a lot of work that can be done that doesn't require touching the workflow or disintermediating the, the flow of data. Who you know, I would just add one thing to that. Just, Please do. It was an interesting, you brought that up. One of the things I'd, have, I'd, I'd say that I think most people, because they haven't gotten beyond the piloting or prototyping of AI and big data into re, real systems, is one thing they're underestimating is the culture shift that's going to take. What I've seen is in a number of the early systems we had, you know, we'd put them out there and you still had a person in the loop. And when the person got the input back from, you know, this AI process, which, which actually was going to enhance the system, you still had somebody had to do something. Well, it turned out if they just looked at it and they, if it agreed with what they thought they did it, and if, they di- if it disagreed, they did what they were going to do anyway, you end up with no efficiency gain. And so the cultural shift of teaching people how to use AI in their job I think we can see that you, you, you see younger people are more comfortable getting machines telling them what to do, while traditional workers who have always worked on intuition and experience have become less comfortable because they haven't had to do that. And I think we're foundationally seeing one change in the world that we're going to have to get over. For the last hundred years, we've had people tell machines what to do. For the next 100 years, machines are going to tell people what to do. And people are very uncomfortable with that shift because they know how they've done it forever. Their experience tells them things. But what they can't understand is the depth of the information and all the nuances to that, which is if they did understand, they would change the way they think. But because they don't, they don't have the full context that these AI and analytics have. And as a result, I think we're not seeing all of the power come out of this. And this idea of a culture shift and the nature of work is going to have to shift as machines tell people what to do. And the benefits of that cooperation, of that way of thinking, are, are evidenced as quite spectacular if you look at the airline industry. 
who would have thought you could move something at 600 miles an hour around the world, you know, 30,000 flights in the air at any given time with essentially 100% uh, safety. Yeah. I mean, that, that's not, nobody would have guessed that was possible, but a lot of it is because the pilots have, used, have learned how to work with the machines. Um, it's, and, and that's a good industry to talk about that, that uh, they've learned, but again, it's a disciplined industry who makes sure that people get good training. And there's a lot to be learned from that, and they make sure their, their pilots are trained, and that's a place you can look at, respect, and figure out what you can learn from. Uh, up to you. What, what's kind of really um, exciting or something that people are not quite clear on, uh, on it being around the corner, maybe even a couple years or 10 years uh, down the line? Yeah. You know, it's not really these, none of this is going to come as a surprise to, your, to the folks, you know, who are listening. The, um, the, you know, certainly blockchain in this is going to have a huge impact. Uh, the reason is, again, when you talk about the automation and industrial setting and guarantees and being able to track and trace and know what's been done, blockchain provides a really interesting environment to not just connect machines, but to optimize the operations and make sure you have full control of those operations and insight. So this is one that will get added into this industrial Internet of Things. Uh, that's probably nearer term. Longer term, you know, I don't think we've figured out how AR and VR fit in this. A lot of great experiments. They're always really sexy things to go look at. But the reality of it is that we have yet to figure out how to make it work in a dirty, dangerous, you know, dull environment. You know, you still have people in hard hats. You've got grease. You've got all kinds of other problems that make it a little more difficult to utilize these kind of tools today. But we're going to get there, but it's probably more of a 10-year. So blockchain, next couple of years, AR, VR, 10 years. You know, when I look at uh, some of the others that I think are going to be game-changing, uh, additive manufacturing has the potential to be game-changing because you, you may upend the whole supply chain. You may move a part rather than you order a part. You order a design and it it's printed at your shop, and you, that's how you get a part. So, again, I think 10 years from now, that's, that is uh, a huge, uh, huge opportunity. And those are a couple of the things that I see that we have. But the one thing everybody's got to realize, you know, when I started this journey eight years ago, it was, all right, it was going to be cloud, mobile, big data. Then it was cloud, mobile, big data, open source, DevOps, agile. Then suddenly... You had to add on all kinds of analytics, machine learning, and AI. And, you know, if you, cybersecurity. So if you look at this, the one thing that's changing is it used to be like one technology shift. What's really happening now is we got an and technology shift occurring. These things build on each other. And when you think about the complexity, if you haven't got all the things I just mentioned right, the idea that you're going to get AR, VR and use it, fantasy, because you got to get the, those other building blocks right. And so we've got to the world we always wanted, building blocks and the ability, you know, containers are helping us, uh, Docker, Kubernetes, and things like that. These are bringing technologies that are allowing us to do things we could never imagine before. But the winning team isn't going to be the one that buys the best technology or uh, it's going to be the one that has the right people to integrate the technology. And so when you talk about integration, it's a talent issue. 
and there is only so much talent in all of those areas, and you better have talent in all those areas, or you better have a partner who has talent that you don't have to make this work. And that, to me, is the challenge that every industrial company faces, is how do you get access to the right talent and the right technology with the right partner? Because you can't get it all. And that's what's going to change. And if you do, blockchain, AR, VR, all the additive technologies are going to be easy to add on. But until you got the first set right, you cannot get the second set right. And it seems like the, the key ingredient, going back to something you, you said below, and in, in knowing which talent you need, it's, it, it has to be that domain knowledge uh, in, in the end. right? Is, is that fundamentally the, the, the single most important filter everything has to go through to make sure that the the outcome is relevant Look, to the end The user. winners are going to have the best domain data and the best domain knowledge in this digital space. Look, over time, the domain data may be able to replace the domain knowledge. Let's face it. Machine learning AI in the next 20 years is going to go places we can't imagine. Over time, whoever has the most domain data will be, I believe, will really be the ones who do, to, to be the most successful. But today, without domain knowledge, you can't really play in this. Ten years from now, you'll start to see that power shift. Bill, we appreciate the, the time you spent with us uh, very, very much. No, Ali, it's great to be with you again. Tech, cars, machines. Subscribe here or at gtkpartners.com.